learning what to act, how to follow things and, and not go down too many rabbit holes or get buried into someone's, you know, gout surgery from 1986. That that takes time. And certainly there are some patients that will bring you down that hole and bury you deep. Enchanted Sky Media. 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 From Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Before we start today, I want to let you know we have some new stuff for you after the interview, so please stick around. Okay, now let's get started. When you arrive on scene of a medical emergency, do you talk with the patient? Sure you do. In fact, if you're still fairly new at EMS, you practically interrogate them. You might ask questions like, when was your last oral intake? Or, what were your events leading up to this incident? Now, those are laughable when you hear them outside of a run. How about, when did you last have something to eat or drink? Or, what happened just before you passed out? A real conversation will get you farther faster than trying to act like a doctor, who, if he has experience, knows better anyway. Here to explain some of the things we can learn just from talking to a patient is Tim Nowak. Tim is the founder and CEO of Emergency Medical Solutions, LLC, an EMS training and consulting company. He's been involved in EMS and emergency services since 2002, and he's worked as an EMT, a paramedic, and a critical care paramedic. He's also been involved as an EMS educator, a firefighter, and a hazmat technician throughout his career. And Tim Nowak joins me now. Welcome back to Code 3. Hey, thanks, Scott, for having me back for a repeat session. So you don't much like how we teach students of pre-hospital care to talk to their patients. Why not? You know, I, I think it's it's something that is certainly or has been a fault of many education systems. And, and I'll be transparent. You know, I was guilty of it early in my education career, too. But what I found is oftentimes we, we teach our students to interrogate our patients rather than actually assess them and more importantly, converse with them. And I've heard back and forth. Uh, you know, this generation, that generation, people don't know how to talk to each other or converse with each other. And I, I think part of that certainly is true, but it is true because of our own fault. We as educators, in a sense, have failed them by not focusing on how to actually converse and rather have just focused on memorizing the check sheet or the checklist and following, uh, following the process with that. Okay, the phrases that they're parroting back from their check sheet training sound silly in retrospect, but what's wrong with using them? You know, checklists have a great sense and a great place within our industry. You know, they promote error reduction. I'm all for that. But the checklist is there really to just give you a sense of what to ask without context. And so what we need to focus on instead is the context. 
you know, asking someone, when was your last oral intake? Well, it's on the sheet and you, you get a point for checking it off, but no one understands what the heck it actually means. And it, it certainly doesn't promote conversation. So, you know, what I would really encourage educators to do is utilize the sheets. And what I'm referring to are at least the National Registry sheets. They, they do a great job of building the framework, building the foundation for what patient assessment needs to entail. But don't allow the students, and I, and I, I mean that, don't allow them to ask questions based off of the sheet. Instead, what I would really encourage is take a next step and on that same sheet of paper, whether it's the patient assessment for trauma, medical, or any other scenario for that matter, what I would encourage is have the students write down, make an assignment, write down a question on what would you ask someone rather than what is your last oral intake, like a robot. Instead, focus on when was the last time you had something to eat? Tell me about that. Was it new? Was it different? Are you diabetic? Build a conversation around it instead of just parroting back what the form says. All right, now that's a good plan for the future if they'll actually start to do it. But is this an art that you learn over the years when you start out being a robot? Or can some of these students who are being robotic now start to accelerate the process of conversing instead of interrogating? Absolutely. You know, I think many of the students, again, unfortunately, have been taught to interrogate and part of that is just due to the fact of, you know, we have to cram in so much in 180, 200 hour, whatever curriculum, uh, specific at least for EMTs. But I think one of the failing points and one area that we can certainly improve upon is putting students in the environment, allowing them to ask questions to regular people. You know, doing a patient assessment and having, you know, a group of three students, you know, one of them is going to be your partner. The other one's going to be the patient who pretends to have chest pain and is a 78-year-old male, even though it's actually a 24-year-old female. Like, that, that doesn't do much good. Yes, it helps you understand the form, but why not put them in an environment where you actually are talking to a 78-year-old male? You know, clinical sessions work out wonderful, and I really encourage students to take advantage of the clinicals. Going uh, even beyond that, I mean, if, if you can't do clinicals in the hospital, then talk with senior centers, talk with other church groups, whatever, and tell, you know, have these patients say like, you know, this is, you are an actual 64 year old female, you have abdominal pain and, and just let the person go with it and, and kind of grade the students based off of that. Have them actually talk to a person, converse with them, touch them. And, and, and that way it's not just their classmates, but it puts them in the environment. So even if you can't create clinical setting, you can still simulate clinical setting and have it somewhat even controlled that way. Now, I don't think this is much in dispute, and I think most preceptors, when they're performing on their own, have already gotten to this point. So do preceptors typically take the time to explain to new paramedics or new EMTs, hey, you need to relax and have a conversation, or do they just let them develop it on their own? You know, I, I think that once we get to that point, there have already been a number of failing elements that have taken place. So typically, especially like in a paramedic program, by the time you're hitting a clinical session or doing your clinicals in a you know somewhat uncontrolled environment like in an ambulance, you, you've already been through the majority of your didactic, the majority of your actual hands-on training. And so at this point, you know, you're a few months into it. And so along that entire pathway, it should have been built in 
and encouraged to have more discussion and not just focus on the question or the sheet. So if, if you're at the point where your clinical preceptor is the one who's having to break the bad news to you, that you have to start talking to people like they're actual people <laughs> and having a conversation with them, it's, it's already kind of late. It can be fixed, but that's a testament to a failure in the system because it's already been X amount of months into it. This should have been figured out much, much sooner. That light bulb should have come on much, much sooner. And if it hasn't popped on automatically from the student standpoint, then in the classroom, uh, that, that really is where that should have been reinforced. Do you feel that students believe that they should speak like this, that it's more official, that it, it's more the right way to do it? Or do you think they just aren't taught the right way to do it? Yeah, you know, I don't think that it's a, you know, a subconscious thought that they should speak like that. I just think that they haven't been shown or told else or otherwise. And again, when when we focus so much on memorizing the sheet or memorizing little phrases, that's what they're going to memorize, you know, throw in some stress of a test or an evaluation, and that's what's going to stick. So from the get-go, that, that sheet, the form, the checklist needs to be there as a reference, but it shouldn't be the end-all, be-all regarding how to actually do it or ask it. So it's great to be a reference there, but uh, with these students, this should be learned much earlier on. So I don't think they consciously go out of their way to ask questions like, what is your last oral intake? I think they weren't taught better or taught differently to do that. We can see why this would be nicer, for lack of a better word, but why is it more effective? You know, I think it's more effective because you're actually getting to the root of the problem and helping guide the conversation, uh, not necessarily putting words in the patient's mouth, but you're guiding the conversation. And along the way, you're checking off things in your mind as far as, okay, you know, I've seen this or heard this before. A patient is telling me this. Okay, I'm going to go down this pathway. So when you have that conversation, you get a better flow with the patient, a better rapport with them, certainly effectively. But you know, along the assessment route, you're able to just kind of dig deeper into what is actually, you know, what is going on? Your, your pain that you're having, is it chronic, always there, nothing is different? Or is this more of an acute on chronic exacerbation of what has happened? So that is just an example of, you know, you're, you're able to get more of the actual story of what happened, not just the facts and only the facts. And again, I, total transparency. I was guilty of this too early in my early on in my career as an educator. I think we all were, and some of us still are. But there is there's hope for us. We can all change and adapt. So this will take two things, I guess. It will take a change in the checklists or the way they're taught, and then the bigger picture, the way they're taught overall. Because at some point, you need to be able to say. We're not asking you to find out what their last intake was. We're asking you to find out what they last had to eat or drink. Yeah, exactly. So then, then the question becomes, how do we get there? How do we change the system so that they're trained this way? Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it really comes down to the self-reflection of the instructor. Because if we teach them, we're allowing it, therefore the student's going to do it. You know, they don't know any better per se because, you know, they're there to learn. They're there to, to, to see what are you doing as the experienced educator, as the experienced provider? So they're going to parrot that naturally. So if if the instructor is not the one leading the curve or changing the paradigm of how we're doing it, 
then then that's that's the root. That's the problem. And you know, it's not that the checklist needs to change. It's the way that we teach it, reinforce it, and allow the conversation to happen that needs change. Big picture here, and I know that, again, most preceptors will teach this over time. Does this send the new paramedic or the new AMT out into the field a little limited on what they're going to learn if they ask question X and they get answer Y? Then they can only do certain things. But I'm thinking that if they ask more broader questions like how do you feel or what are you feeling, you may end up with a better diagnosis. Yeah, and and I think that finesse, that takes time. Learning what to act, how to follow things and, and not go down too many rabbit holes or get buried into someone's, you know, gout surgery from 1986, like oh, that, that doesn't relate to now. So that, that takes time, and certainly there are some patients that will bring you down that hole and bury you deep. We've all been there for that. So that, that finesse of it takes time, takes experience. Again, in that clinical setting or even uh, simulated clinical setting, put your students in a nursing home or a senior facility or you know, work with a certain group. Heck, uh, involve your Cub Scouts or something and, and utilize them as pediatrics and have that conversation because you know how you would talk to a – a six-year-old, a nine-year-old, a 16-year-old, or a 36 or 86-year-old is going to be slightly different. And if you can put them in front of those people, I think that will help to reinforce that. How important is this? I mean, given that over time people will learn not to do it, is there an importance to getting them on the street doing it right? Or doing it, I don't even want to say doing it right, doing it better. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's already a testament of, of a time where we need to implement this or do this differently and do this, I think better is the right word. You know, not necessarily, you know, saying better as in my way is better, but better as in simply going off the sheet is not sufficient. That again is a baseline checklist. It's not necessarily meant for how to converse. So, you know, we're already complaining about millennials this and zennials and whatever else that. Uh, you know, this generation doesn't know how to converse with people. I just, just wish they would, you know, get up their phone and do a handshake, whatever. Okay, well, then reinforce that. So teach that and, and teach them how we do things or how we should do things aside from just the checklist. Again, if you teach them a checklist, they're nervous enough as a student. They're going to do it and they're going to do it well. But if we teach them how to converse and ask that question and, and more importantly, too, what does the question mean? You know, why am I doing a head to toe assessment when this is a stub toe? You know, do I need to do a head-to-toe assessment? In theory, yes, on every person you do, you do, but it's limited and it's, you know, designated for this or it's more focused toward that. So asking the questions, you know, the sample, the OPQ or ST, do they pertain to everyone? No. But in, in certain contexts and scenarios, it can pertain and you can certainly ask them for, you know, ask those questions to anyone just with a slight spin to it. And, you know, Again, guiding somewhat of the way of I'm, I'm asking this in this certain way because I want to check off two birds with one stone or I, I want to at least, you know, guide myself down a pathway or rule in or, or out something. I think we can agree that it's not easy for the person who's new in the field to know what to ask without asking too little or being terrified. They're going to ask too little. Or asking too much and then getting dragged down that rabbit hole. So it sounds like it's a matter of a little experience, which you might get through clinicals, 
to know how far to go without going too far too little. Yeah, and, and I think that that clinical setting really helps to reinforce it. And again, you know, an EMT program, even on the high end, is the you know you're looking at 200 hours. That's that's short. And I, I foresee that you know over time uh, things will change and it will become lengthened. Uh, but even within a paramedic program, that that is really where you've got a substantial amount of clinical time. And, uh, you know, there is an expectation at least that you are able to converse with patients to some extent, just a matter of, you know, honing in your differential diagnosis. So getting these, these students, especially early on in front of other patients, focusing on a lot of clinical time, a lot of face time is, is a good thing. And, and that I think will help to shape our industry better toward, you know, having that conversation, gaining some more respect for what we do and how we do it. All right, Tim Nowak, great to have you back on Code 3. Thanks. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks. I appreciate it. Tim's passionate about this. How do you feel you do when you're talking with a patient? You can leave your comments on our website at code3podcast.com slash humane. There are links to more resources there as well. This week, we heard from David Hasselmeyer of On Target Preparedness. He's also a firefighter paramedic with Booz Creek Fire Rescue in Lillington, North Carolina. He had some comments on Greg Freeze's predictions about the coming decade in emergency services. I was listening to one of your podcasts recently with Greg Freeze, and he was talking about recruitment and retention. And one of the things that I wanted to mention was, because I have a big passion for this, is the problem with recruitment and retention is that we continually look at this as if we were in the same department in the 1980s. Recruitment and retention is something that we have not adjusted for today. We have not adjusted for the change in the people that we have, whether it's volunteer or career. We keep doing the same things. I travel and teach about recruitment and retention, and one of the things I always like to ask them is what kind of recruitment and retention actions are you taking? And most of the time, what I hear is, well, we have it out on the front side that we want to have new members or we tell people we want new members. And so that is something that we have to change. We have to change the culture of how we're doing recruitment and retention so that way we can look into it as something that we're doing here in 2020 and not something that we're doing just like we did in the 1980s. Thank you, David. He called us at 562-337-9902 to leave that message, and you can too. If you hear something you don't agree with or you want to add your comments, just call us at 562-337-9902 and record a voicemail. We'll use it in the next show. Speaking of the next show, it wouldn't be possible without the support of the superfans who've made a pledge at our Patreon page. These are people like Andrew, Blaine Donovan, Cole Gilmore, Timothy Trent, and our newest supporter, Ulrich Kellner. Ulrich was a guest a while back telling us what it's like to be a firefighter in Germany. He decided to help keep Code 3 going strong. Why not join him? It's easy. Head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support. If you donate $10 a month or more, you'll get instant access to the Code 3 Bull Sessions. These are extra content made available exclusively to patrons. So make your pledge today. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. 
I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me then. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's topic, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.